It was reported to Joab, the king is weeping, he's mourning over Absalom. That day's victory was turned into mourning for all the troops, because on that day the troops heard, the king is grieving over his son. So they returned to the city quietly that day, like people come in when they are humiliated after fleeing in battle. But the king hid his face and cried out at the top of his voice, my son Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today you have shamed all your soldiers, those who rescued your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, your wives and your concubines. You love your enemies and hate those who love you. Today you have made it clear that the commanders and soldiers mean nothing to you. In fact, today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, it would be fine with you. Now get up. Go out and encourage your soldiers, for I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will remain with you tonight. This will be worse for you than all the trouble that has come to you from your youth until now. So the king got up and sat in the gate, and all the people were told, Look, the king is sitting in the gate. Then they all came into the king's presence. Meanwhile, each Israelite had fled to his tent. All the people were arguing among the tribes of Israel. Sorry, all the people among the tribes of Israel were arguing. The king delivered us from the grasp of our enemies, and he rescued us from the grasp of the Philistines. But now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, the man we anointed over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about restoring the king? King David sent word to the priests, Zadok and Abiathar. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to restore the king to his palace? The talk of all Israel has reached the king at his house. You are my brothers, my flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to restore the king? And tell Amasa, aren't you my flesh and blood? May God punish me and do so severely if you don't become the commander of the army from now on instead of Joab. So he won over all the men of Judah and they sent word to the king. Come back, you and all your servants. Then the king returned. When he arrived at the Jordan, Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and escort him across the Jordan. Uh, Let's continue on from verse 31. Basili the Gileadite had come down from Rogilim and accompanied the king to the Jordan River to see him off at the Jordan. Basili was a very old man. 80 years old, and since he was a very wealthy man, he had provided for the needs of the king while he stayed at Mahanaim. The king said to Bazillai, cross over with me and I'll provide for you at my side in Jerusalem. Bazillai replied to the king, how many years of my life are left that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king? I am now 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or drinks? Can I still hear the voice of male and female singers? Why should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Since your servant is only going with the king a little way across the Jordan, why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return so I may die in my own city near the tomb of my father and mother. But here is your servant Chimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king. Do for him what it seems good to you. 
The king replied, Chimham will cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. And whatever you desire from me, I will do for you. So all the people crossed the Jordan, and then the king crossed. The king kissed Basili and blessed him, and Basili returned to his home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went with him. All the troops of Judah and half of Israel escorted the king. Suddenly, all the men of Israel came to the king. They asked him, Why did our brothers, the men of Judah, take you away secretly and transport the king and his household across the Jordan, along with all of David's men? All the men of Judah responded to the men of Israel, Because the king is our relative. Why does this make you angry? Have we ever eaten anything of the king's or been honoured at all? The men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, so we have a greater claim to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Weren't we the first to speak of restoring our king? But the words of the men of Judah were harsher than those of the men of Israel. Good day, everyone. How are you going? You mumble, that's how good you are. Hey, grab your sermon outline and also stay open in 2 Samuel 19 there. But just a few announcements before we get stuck into this passage. Uh, first of all, you'll see a lovely mountain of things piling up here. It ever grows, but next Sunday is the last uh, opportunity to bring along to that. You can bring along during the week, but also next Sunday is the cutoff. So bring in your toys and tucker. Uh, toys that do not perish. Sorry, toys that do not perish. <laughs> Food that does not perish and good quality toys so that people this Christmas who are disadvantaged might be able to celebrate and enjoy Christmas a bit more than they would have. Also in your sermon outline, on your feedback slip, you'll see a tick box for Christmas flyer help. If you want to help getting the news of our Christmas services out, then please tick that box and hand it in later on. And also next Sunday night is our confirmation service, uh, which is going to be a really exciting time, watching uh, a bunch of people stand up here and declare their allegiance to Christ and that they turn away from sin and the devil. It's going to be a great night together, but it will be pretty full, so please bear with one another. Please try and park um, at a distance if you're able to and walk, and please fill all the seats next Sunday night. But that's happening, and you'll see the list of confirmees in your weekly snack, and you can be praying for them in the week. Also, let me introduce to you the date of our Christmas party. Woo! 6.30 Christmas party is coming up in just a few weeks' time, Saturday the 17th 17th of December, 4 to 8pm at Brighton Beach. It will be a great time of just enjoying food and fun together. And we're doing food this year within our gospel team. So it's everyone figure out in your gospel teams who's going to bring food, who's going to bring what. And then we'll have food together on the beach and enjoy a good time together. Also, uh, you heard last week that next year we're having our snack big day out. Saturday the 25th of March 2017. Get in early because the prices are really good right now and you would have got a rego form in your snack as well. And as Matt may have said before, uh, we're tonight doing the NCLS, the National Life National Church Life Survey. That's going to take a little bit of time at the end of our service, so don't rush off. Uh, but yeah, it's a great opportunity to uh, give 
important data so that research can be done into how the church is in Australia and how we might continue to grow under God. But now let's pray really briefly and uh, get into this passage. Speak, O Lord, until your church is built and your glorious name is spread throughout all the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is anyone here a fan of the band Crowded House? I have a few friends. This is good. I'm a big fan of Crowded House. They might not be as hip and up to the, to the new cool things that you guys might like these days, but they are definitely successful and influential in the music industry. You would have heard their songs on the radio, on movies. Don't dream it's over. You know that song? Um, and probably the most significant thing about them and their success is that they took a 10-year hiatus. 10 years. 10 years without playing, without releasing any music. So the first stint, 11 years, they were together. They released music. They released chart-topping hits. And then they finished in November 1996 with their iconic concert on the steps of the Opera House. I'm seeing some of you nod because you think that's pretty cool. It is cool. I wish I could go back in time to that moment. So that was it for 10 years, a 10-year hiatus from that point onwards. But then along came 2006, and to everyone's surprise, Crowded House reformed. They were back, releasing music and touring. And surprisingly, they have remained successful and influential, particularly in Australia and New Zealand, where they're from. This week, they were inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame. And tonight, 20 years after they played that concert on the Opera House Steps, they are playing on the Opera House Steps again, 20 years later. It'd be good to go, but we're here, so. (laughs) But what a comeback, right? Their story is one of those great comeback stories, especially as far as music goes. But my question is, have Crowded House been restored to their former glory? Some would say yes. In my humble opinion, no. They still have good songs. They're still good musos. But their songs really aren't as good as their hits from the past. And sadly, their drummer, original drummer, committed suicide just in the year before they reformed. Well, today in 2 Samuel, we have King David's comeback tour. It's his comeback story. So let's see if he is restored to his former glory. So where are we up to in the story of 2 Samuel? Remember the last few weeks? Last week we took a break from 2 Samuel to think about our vision as a church and some of our plans for next year. Hope that was an encouraging time for you. Today we're in chapter 19. What's been going on? Do you remember our friend Absalom? Well, he's not really our friend. But who is Absalom? Some of the names are hard to remember. There's lots of characters. Who's Absalom? David's son. King David's son. He's the next in line to be king. Except he doesn't want to wait his turn, does he? He steals the hearts of Israel. He comes to Jerusalem and his father, David, has to flee whilst Absalom comes into the palace and sits on his father's throne. Meanwhile, David flees. Jerusalem, with his supporters, he runs across the Jordan River up to Mahanaim. He's been rejected as king. But how long does this rebellion of Absalom last? Not very long, right? In chapter 18, a vicious battle happens in the forest of Ephraim. And what happens to Absalom? 
As he's on his mule, he gets his head caught in branches. And as he's dangling there, Joab's men, David's men, come up and stab him. They spear him as he hangs there like a piñata. It would be a little bit funny and comedic, except it's really horrifying and gory and disturbing. So now Absalom, David's son, is dead. And soon enough, the news reaches David. And the question on everyone's lips is this. What will happen to the kingdom now that Absalom is dead? What will happen to David? Will he be restored as king? What will the people of Israel do? And then, as we see in chapter 19, different people respond to Absalom's death. We see what happens to the kingdom. So come with me, chapter 19. We're going to look at the beginning and the end. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go through the middle bit. So come with me, chapter 19, verse 1, David's response. It was reported to Joab, the king is weeping. He's mourning over Absalom. And then we see that happen in verse 4. But the king hid his face and cried out at the top of his voice, My son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. How does David respond to Absalom's death? Like any father should, right? He mourns and cries. He pours out anguish and pain and sadness. The road to David's restoration is now clear. Absalom is gone, but he is not rejoicing. He can be restored as king, but instead he mourns and weeps. But there's a serious problem with this response of David. Why? Because the army has been victorious in battle. The army, David's army, has gone out to fight in his name. They've gone out and risked their lives, some even paying the ultimate sacrifice, to protect David. They've risked their lives for him, and David is unthankful. Look at verse 2. That day's victory was turned into mourning for all the troops. Verse 3, so they returned to the city quietly. That day, like people come in when they are humiliated and are fleeing in battle. The problem is a conflict, isn't it, between David's love for his son and his loss, but also his role as king and the fact that his soldiers have fought and won a battle for him. So now Joab, David's general, one of our favorite characters, he hears about this and how does he respond? He's furious, isn't he? He is livid. Look at verses 5 to 7. He rebukes David. David, you have shamed your soldiers. Those who love you and fight for you, do they mean nothing to you? Look at the end of verse 6. In fact, today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, it would be fine with you. So he says to David in verse 7, Get up. Stop wailing. Get up and talk to your soldiers because otherwise... They're all going to leave you. How can you be restored as king with no one to follow you? How can the kingdom be restored if you shame your people like this? Job's bold, isn't he? But he also makes sense. And so David does what he says. Verse 8, he goes and encourages his men despite his sadness. So that's David's response. A response that almost cost him the kingdom again. It's put his comeback tour on hold, almost. 
But let's move on. In the next part, we see Israel's response to Absalom's death. Look at the end of verse 8 with me. Meanwhile, each Israelite had fled to his tent. All the people among, sorry, all the people among all the tribes of Israel were arguing. How does Israel respond to Absalom's death? Arguing, bickering, fighting. They say, on the one hand, David's saved us from the Philistines. He's been a great king. But on the other hand, we made Absalom our king instead of David. We rejected him. But now, Absalom, the guy we made king, he's dead. And so, what do we do now? What should we do? Should we restore David, make him king again, or not? You can see the nation is fractured, can't you? They can't agree on what to do, on whom to follow. Israel is fractured, divided, not unified. Why? Well, remember, it's all because of King David. It's because of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. It's because God said disaster would come on you from your own family. And now it's happened. And what's left is a fractured nation. Fractured because of David's sin. Because of his sons and their sin. But then we see another response. The response of Judah, David's tribe. How does Judah respond to Absalom's death? Look at verse 11. King David sent word to the priests, Zadok and Abiathar. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to restore the king to his palace? The talk of all Israel has reached the king at his house. You are my brothers, my flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to restore the king? It seems that David realizes he needs to act quickly if he's going to be restored as king. So he sends a message from Mahanaim to Jerusalem, to the capital that Absalom had stolen. And he says this, You are my own flesh and blood. We're family. We're from the same tribe, Judah. I'm your king. So make sure you're the first to restore me, not the last. The elders of Judah, they had conspired with Absalom. They'd kicked David out. They'd rejected him. But then David shrewdly wins, him back, wins them back so that he can be restored. He entices them. Restore me first and you'll look good. And then in verse 13, he entices them by saying, I'll promote Amasa, Absalom's general, from your tribe as my general in place of Joab. Now, during the week, you might have seen that in the next chapter, Joab isn't really happy about this, and he does what Joab does best. He takes Amasa out of the picture. But this is how David wins back the tribe of Judah. And so they agree. Look at verse 14. So he won over all the men of Judah, and they sent word to the king, Come back, you and all your servants. Then the king returned. When he arrived at the Jordan, Judah came to Gilgal, to meet the king and escort him across the Jordan. They respond positively, don't they? They had rejected him, but now they repent and turn back to King David. They restore him as their king. And then in the middle of the chapter, we get these really great interactions. People responding to David, meeting him on the road. Shimei, Ziba, Mephibosheth, Barzillai. 
But unfortunately, we don't have time to look at them. I would have loved to do two talks on this passage, but I thought you might have fallen asleep. So come with me to the last part of the chapter where we'll see the kingdom restored but still fractured. Look at verse 39 and 40. David and his entourage, they're now back on the road. They're on the road from Mahanaim back to Jerusalem to take the throne. They're going to restore him as king. They get to Gilgal and the men of Judah, they've come up and they begin to escort him. Here's a picture. They begin to escort him back to Jerusalem. But in verse 41, all of a sudden they're stopped. The men of Israel are here. Now this is probably the 10 northern tribes, their elders and leaders, they come to David and they have a bone to pick with him. What do they say? Have a look at verse 41. Why did our brothers, the men of Judah, take you away secretly and transport the king and his household across the Jordan along with all of David's men? You see what they're doing? They're basically whinging, aren't they? David... The men of Judah didn't include us in this important decision. David, the men of Judah didn't ask us what we should do. David, the men of Judah have gone behind our backs and done this thing, restoring you as king. And how do the men of Judah respond? Verse 42, they say, David is our relative. He's from our tribe, Judah. Why wouldn't we be the first ones to restore him as king? Then verse 43, the men of Israel reply, You're only one tribe, little Judah. We're ten. We have ten shares in the king. You only have one. We even decided before you that we would restore the king. Little Judah, we're ten tribes. You're just one. But then look at the end of verse 43. But the words of the men of Judah were harsher than those of the men of Israel. I think that's probably code for they said some really, really bad things and we would want to block our ears and pretend we didn't hear them. But it seems that at this point, most people have swung around. They want to restore David. They want to support him. They want him to be their king. But now they're fighting and bickering. Bickering about who should restore the king. Who deserves the king more? And it can seem a little petty to us, can't it? But aren't we sometimes the same? When we really care about something, but someone else doesn't really care about it or wants to do it a different way, doesn't that really frustrate us? Can't we be just as harsh and stubborn? But that's where we end up at the end of this long, difficult day in the life of Israel. David rejected as king, but now restored. Rejected as king, but now restored to a fractured kingdom because they argue because they fight because they bicker this is david's comeback he's restored as king but there still is fracture and division david isn't restored to his former glory it's all because of his sin and his son's sin and israel's sin and it basically remains this way for the rest of david's life and the rest of israel's history They're totally fractured and divided. No unity at all. Isn't that awful? Isn't it awful when God's people are fractured? Just think about this for a moment. 
God had saved his people, his special people. God chose Abraham and his descendants to be his possession. He saved them from slavery in Egypt. He carried them through the wilderness. He gave them his presence and his law. He led them into a land flowing with milk and honey. He dwelt among them. Now what are they doing? Fighting and bickering. Betraying, betraying and murdering, dividing and conquering each other. This is not what God desires for his people, is it? He's told us what he desires for his people. Unity, peace, love, partnership in living for God, unified under God's king. God has saved a people, not a person. And God has saved a people to worship him together not just as individuals, not divided and separate and fractured. Listen to how Psalm 133 puts it. The psalmist reflects on God's people and he says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers, God's people, live together in harmony. God desires that his people live together in unity and harmony. It's beautiful. It's good. It's pleasant. It's the right response to his grace and his command. But are these words, words that you would use to describe Israel in 2 Samuel 19? Unity, harmony, good, pleasant. They are anything but, aren't they? The situation is not good and pleasant at all. I don't know about you, but as we've been reading 2 Samuel, I've just been struck by the evil, the manipulation, the betrayal, the violence, the selfishness, the abuse that people are capable of. Even God's people. And it can be tempting to stand in judgment over Israel in the Old Testament, can't it? But let's think a little more close to home. Are those words, unity, harmony, good, pleasant, words that you would use to describe God's people today? Would you use them to describe God's church? What about this church, this congregation? Because God didn't just desire that his Old Testament people live in unity. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3. These are amazing and wonderful verses. This is what God desires. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive Above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity. God desires unity and harmony amongst his New Testament people. He desires brothers and sisters to put on love, the perfect bond of unity. Are those words that you would use to describe God's church? I thank God that in so many ways... I see these verses being lived out in this church. 
I see a joy that springs from our common faith in Jesus. I see God bringing together incredibly different people simply because they trust in Jesus together. I see love and unity because of Jesus. And I see people striving for unity even when it's hard. Even in the last week and month, I've spoken to fellow Christians who've had difficulties with other brothers or sisters in Christ, and I've seen a genuine heart to live out these verses, to put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. I've seen members of our church accepting and forgiving one another as Jesus has forgiven them. It's beautiful, it's good. It's pleasant. There is remarkable unity in Christ because God has brought us together. But I'm not so naive to think that there isn't or won't be fractures in our church. We struggle with fractures just like Israel did. So when we see Israel fractured and divided in a passage like this, shouldn't it challenge us? Shouldn't it cause us to reflect and ask, is there any fracture in our fellowship? Is there any hurt that needs to be apologized for or forgiven? Shouldn't it stir us up to strive for unity instead of division and fracture? Shouldn't it cause us to put Colossians 3 into practice as God's chosen ones, holy, dearly loved and forgiven by him? Shouldn't we strive for unity under King Jesus? which is what he desires. Maybe there's a situation or a person that you need to address, a fracture that you need to mend, a hurt you need to heal, an apology that you need to make or accept. Can I encourage you to do something about it today? Because God desires unity in his church, in his people. But that's really a side point to what this passage is mainly about. 2 Samuel 19 is teaching us what? It's teaching us about David's comeback, isn't it? His next world tour. We see David rejected as king, but then restored to his rightful place. The kingdom is restored, even if it is still fractured. And this rejection and restoration of David, it should point us forward to another rejection and restoration another person who was rejected as king but then restored to his rightful place who was rejected by his own people only to be restored as king by god himself who is it none other than our lord jesus christ isn't it just as david was rejected and then restored so jesus the son of david was rejected and then restored Just like David, Jesus was rejected by his own people. His own people, the Jews, conspired against him. They rejected him as king. They plotted his death. They arrested him, falsely accused him, beat him, mock him, and handed him over to be crucified so that he would hang on a cross painfully and shamefully. They buried him in a tomb, thinking they had been successful. He's rejected. But God had other plans. In Acts 5, the Apostle Peter says these words to the very Jewish leaders who killed Jesus. 
The God of our fathers has raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. Peter doesn't hold back, does he? But now God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and saviour to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Even though they rejected Jesus as king, God raised him back from the dead, which is really the best comeback, isn't it? If you can't keep the person dead that you killed, then what are you doing? God raised him up. God placed him in his rightful place, ruling over all people, all creation. And so now Jesus grants repentance to Israel and forgiveness to anyone who will turn to him in faith. So King David points us forward to King Jesus who wasn't rejected for his own weaknesses like David was. No, instead, Jesus was rejected for our weaknesses, our sin, so that we could go free. King David points us forward to King Jesus, who was restored, not just restored to a fractured kingdom like David. No, instead, Jesus was restored to an everlasting, unshakable, unbreakable kingdom, the kingdom of God, which he invites us to be a part of. Last week we thought about Jesus. We thought about proclaiming Jesus as one of our points of our mission statement. And this is why we proclaim him. This is the Jesus we proclaim and why we proclaim him. He was rejected by his own people for our sake. But then he was raised and restored to his rightful place. To God's right hand as ruler and saviour. So why not proclaim him why not declare his praises to the world why not believe in him and strive to live for him why not strive for the unity that he died for in our church because what better king is there to serve and what better kingdom is there to be a part of if you don't know king jesus if you're not yet a christian then this is what you are missing out on Knowing and serving the good king who made you and then laid down his life for you, rejected by his people, and then restored. Turn to him. Repent and believe. Bow your knee to him as king. Ask him for his grace and forgiveness and he will give it to you. And if you are a Christian, if Jesus is your king, then let's let that truth The truth that Jesus was rejected for us, but then restored to his rightful place, ruling over all things. Let's let that truth lead us to rejoice in our King. Let's let that truth lead us to persevere in our faith in him. King Jesus is the one who is rejected for our sake, but then restored King over all. His kingdom is an everlasting, unbreakable, unshakable kingdom. And he invites us to be a part of it. Let's praise him now. King Jesus, you are worthy of all of our praise, our worship and honour. Because you have brought about a kingdom that cannot be shaken and that lasts for all eternity. And you have graciously invited us to be part of that as we turn from our sin and entrust our lives to you. What incredible blessing and mercy you have poured upon us. 
Lord Jesus, please help us to live with you as our King, to trust you with all things, and to rejoice in you and persevere, always trusting in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.